Again, our gracious God, we thank you for this word that you have given to your church. It is a trust to us, the most precious trust that we have. We pray that you would, through this word, help us to understand truth. And most of all, by the Spirit at work through it, show us Jesus and point us to him and a new life through him. Amen. We've got to jump right in today. Let's begin with this simple reality. Anything can be coveted, and anyone can covet. You can covet a stamp or a coin that is absent from your collection, and you would like to have it, as well as you can covet a car, a house, a yard, a job, power, money, influence. You can covet someone else's life. You can covet someone else's spouse. You can covet a spouse period. You can covet someone else's spiritual gifts. You can covet someone else's church, someone else's pastor. You can covet anything that belongs to someone else. If you're a country, you can covet land. You can covet trade routes. You can covet resources. All of us can covet popularity. Both in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, we are provided with examples of the kinds of things that you can covet. So you can covet a house, you can covet a spouse, you can covet uh, the, the various animals that are listed in these uh, texts before us. But when Paul reflects on the command, when he repeats the command in Romans chapter 7, he does not supply an object. He just says, you know the command, you shall not covet. It's helpful sometimes to think of the list, but Paul says, listen, you can think of anything you want. Put anything in that slot. You shall not covet this. And you can put everything in that particular slot because the command covers everything. And anyone can covet. This is true, and it's something that we have noted from other passages of Scripture. But this command is no respecter of persons. It does not matter. Your age does not matter, your race, your nationality, your socioeconomic status, and it does not matter in which culture you live or what century or what millennium in which you live. Anyone can covet. If you have a two-year-old, you know that two-year-olds can covet. They can't do a lot of things, but coveting they have the ability to do. They can covet a toy, they can covet their attention, they can covet their comfort, they can covet a particular kind of food. If you have a teenager, you know that they can covet. They can covet certain types of clothes, certain types of cars, certain types of gadgets. You know that they can covet. If you are in the prime of your life right now, whatever age is the prime of your life, I'll leave that undefined for a moment. It keeps getting older. Uh, But if you are in the prime of your life, you know how much you can covet. And if you're at the end of your life, you can covet someone else's youth, someone else's security, the opportunity that someone else has in their retirement to take vacations because perhaps of their good health or their finances. You know that you can covet. Anything and anyone, and so it is very easy to agree with the Apostle Paul. This commandment nails us. This commandment nails us to the cross. This 
commandment comes in and it kills us. Well, we might say the commandment should be for us life-giving. And yet, they kill us. I read this quote this week. It is ascribed to a chief of an Indonesian tribal group. You may have heard it before, but I think it's worth repeating. He is reported to have said, I would rather have the 7,777 commands and prohibitions of the Taraja Adat than the Ten Commandments of the Christians. For the Ten Commandments demand my whole heart, whereas the 7,777 ancestral commands and prohibitions leave room for a lot of freedom. As we consider this command that is before us today, then I'm going to ask two very basic questions of it. First of all, what is coveting? And secondly, what is not coveting? Covetousness is an inordinate affection, an inappropriate desire, an excessive wanting, an unreasonable passion or selfish ambition. Within those dyads, those couplets that I put together there, you can have a number of things. Several things can be a problem that turns something into coveting. First of all, you can have a problem with the degree of the desire. So that is why all of those adjectives are used before the nouns. Inordinate, inappropriate, excessive, unreasonable. The degree to which you want or desire or covet something can be the problem. Secondly, you can have a problem with the object of the desire. So that regardless of the degree, you should not want it at all, period, if it belongs to someone else. There is no appropriate level of desire for your neighbor's spouse. Not a little bit is okay. A lot is the problem. There's none. Third, you can have a problem with the aim of your desire. And this is what James gets at when he talks in this passage that we just looked at. You ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So your own passion creates a desire in you. You pray and ask for that particular thing. You get it. And the aim was wrong because instead of looking how I can use this for the glory of God, for the service of someone else, you instead appropriate that blessing to yourself for your own passions. Now we've already seen, even just thus far, both in the scriptures and in the words that I've used, that there are a full quiver of words available within this semantic field that relate to what we're talking about today. So covet, desire, affection, want, passion, ambition, lust, jealousy, envy, greed. And I'm sure that's not exhaustive. But that gives us a little bit of a picture of all of the things that rotate around this idea that we are discussing today. All of them are works of the interior life. They are all things that are going on somewhere in our heart, mind, and soul. And so, yes, God has both 
the audacity and the authority to command the heart, not only the actions which flow from the heart. I mean, it is one thing to think, okay, tell me, no one is comfortable with someone telling them what to do, but it is one thing to say, okay, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not murder. Those are the acts themselves. But God, in his last commandment, says to you, I'm commanding your heart as well. Yes, I am commanding the affections of your heart. That is a difficult pill to swallow in any age, but particularly, perhaps, in ours when, as we know, we've talked about this in Sunday school, we've talked about it in other sermons, we live in an age that has certain mottos. For example, to your own self be true. Or, same thing, follow your heart. God says, I have another idea. It may be that following your heart is actually not such a good idea in the first place because your heart is full of covetousness. Here's the better idea. Follow my heart. Distrust your heart. Trust my heart as it is revealed in my word and follow what I say to you. Our hearts have, in fact, been full of this sin of covetousness since the very first sin. We went back to Genesis in uh, Sunday school. We'll go back to it now in this sermon as well. When Satan had deceived Eve, she then, then reflected on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she found that that tree was desirable to make one wise. Now, that word that is used right there, desirable, is the exact same word that is used in our commandment. She found that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was covetable. And so what happened to her was, and it happens to us, it's the same sin, we just mimic the sin over and over again. It was a wrong degree of affection expressed towards the wrong object, a tree from which they had been forbidden, and finally, to the wrong end. She was seeking a wisdom outside of the wisdom that God was giving, a wisdom that she could discover through a means that God had forbidden, the wrong aim. Every sin that we commit is something of the same exact sin. And ever since then, we can recognize then going from from that to Genesis chapter 4, that sin has a desire for us. So remember the story of Cain and Abel and the words from God to Cain. Its desire is for you. It wants you. It's passionate for you. Sin covets you. That's not exactly the same word there, so don't mess that up. But you must master it. It has a desire in and of itself. Coveting is almost as natural to us as breathing. I would suggest this, that it is part of the white noise of our mental processing. It is happening so often 
that we hardly know what's going on. It's just back there. I mean, sometimes it gets more in focus as we go after something in particular, but it's always churning. Left to ourselves, we would not even notice the inner machinations of this insidious heart disease. The plaque would be building up, building up, and building up, and it kills us, and we're not even aware of it. And that is why Paul says in Romans 7, I wouldn't have even known this was a sin. It wouldn't have occurred to me. Perhaps other things being made in the image of God would have occurred to him. Murder's wrong, adultery's wrong, stealing's wrong. Okay. But this one, I wouldn't have known it was a sin except for the fact that the law of God tells me this is a sin. In other words... We just call covetousness by another name when we reflect on it. We think that it's nothing more than healthy ambition, a good amount of personal drive, the pursuit of success, the pursuit of the good life. That's all we're talking about. Nothing wrong with that. But then the law of God comes in and shines the light of God's holiness on the darkness of our heart and the way that it works, and it shows to us, it reveals to us what is actually the motivation there, which is namely our selfishness. And it kills us. And, and this all makes it very hard for us to discern between what is coveting and what is not coveting. Not coveting can be defined with one biblical word, which is picked up in our catechisms, in at least the third hymn today. And that one biblical word is contentment. It's a more powerful word and concept than we give it credit for being. We're driven people. And contentment, at least linguistically speaking, in the way that we say those two words, driven, content. Contentment compared to being driven seems to us to be what? Lame and tame. After all, think about this for a moment. If, if you're hiring an employee, what do you want? Someone who's content? or someone who is driven. If you're teaching a student, what do you want? A driven student or a content student? If you're coaching somebody on a team, whatever level, doesn't make any difference. What do you want? Driven or content? Now, I realize full well that I'm messing a little bit right now with our categories. And, and it's necessary, because really what we've got to do for a moment is kind of work through the jungle of our hearts and minds with a machete. And when you're working with a machete, you're not paying attention to little things. You're just whacking away because you've got to get big stuff out of the way before you can talk or consider little stuff, little plants. So you've got to wrestle with what is contentment and what is drive. We've got to expose our hearts Contentment is a little word, 
It's an innocuous-sounding word. And yet, it really rests on a soaring granite mountain of theology. Just, just let me say it for a moment. I can be content because my loving, sovereign Father reigns over the world, over every circumstance in the world, and every circumstance that is found in my particular life. I can be content because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose for me. And in dying for me, he forgives the sin of my covetousness and every other evil which flows out of my heart. I'm washed in him. I can be content regardless of my current status, whether I am healthy or not, rich or poor, single or married, dead-end job or the greatest job in the world. Because in Jesus Christ, I am an heir of all things. I have nothing to earn. I have no ladder to climb for success. I have no test score that I have to secure, no exam I have to pass. I have no grade that I need to make. I have no scholarship that I need to secure. I have no school that I need to get into. I have nothing to earn because it has all been given. I am going to receive it all because I am a son of God by faith through the grace of Jesus Christ. Where does contentment come from? granite truths like that. And thus, Paul makes a little statement. If we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. Do not fall for the lies. I know it sounds cliche to say this, but let's say it just for the sake of clarity. Do not think that the new house the new job, the new friend, the new school. Do not think that when the kids get older, do not think that those things will bring you contentment because contentment is never locked into our circumstances. Now, circumstances can be enjoyed. They can be good circumstances or difficult circumstances, but contentment can't be locked to them. Why? Because contentment is found in God and godliness. Regardless of what circumstances are around us. Now let me step back for a moment and try and clean up some of the mess that I've created. When I defined covetousness, I put an adjective before all of the various synonyms, all of the words in the semantic field. Adjectives like inordinate, excessive. And that is essential to put those in front of it because now we must joyfully proclaim that we are not advocating for the death of desire. But rather... It's recovery, it's renewal, redemption, rebirth, 
reconstitution, refocus, it's redirection. God made you with desires. Everybody's got a hungry heart, and it's not because of sin. It's because that's the way God created you. It's been corrupted, admittedly, but everybody's got a hungry heart because you're supposed to have a hungry heart. Because if you don't have a hungry heart, you have no idea what it means to be satisfied. And God would have you satisfied. Let's go back to Genesis again for just a moment. I'm going to read a verse to us that we've looked at a number of times. Great verse out of Genesis chapter 2. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The word pleasant is another innocuous word. It almost seems like a little onomatopoeia, pleasant. It just sounds nice. I mean, you want to know what the Hebrew word for pleasant is? Covet. Covet. It's the same exact word that is in your commandment. God made trees before the fall that were appropriate for you to covet. That is a desire that is rightly shaped, that is rightly focused, that has a good object and a good finality as it finds its joy in God the Creator by appreciating this beauty through the eyes that he's given to you. There's nothing wrong... I'm sorry, I moved away from the mic. There's nothing wrong with it. It is appropriate. It's the next chapter in which it becomes wrong because the object changes, the aim changes, the degree of the affection changes, but it's not wrong in and of it of itself. Let's say this plainly, as plainly as we can. God desires that we desire what is good. In fact, God desires that we desire what is best. And then what is best orients all the rest. And that is why Asaph, in Psalm 73, can say, Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. That is why Jesus can say, Seek first the kingdom of God, and all of these things will be yours as well. And that is why Paul can say, Of all of the things that are out there in my life, all of my educational opportunities, the milestones that I've crossed in life, I consider them all to be rubbish refuse compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ and being conformed to him. Jesus desired. He desired to do the will of his Father regardless of the circumstance, and so he himself becomes the desire of the nations, the desire of the everlasting hills, And you have become his desire. Against him, against Jesus, in him, we evaluate all of the other 
desires that we have, and we are slowly enlightened in what is inordinate and what is appropriate of our own affections. Paul can say of his fellow Jews, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for their salvation. David can say in Psalm 19, I desire the word above gold. And yes, the word for desire there is the exact same word as covet. I covet the word above anything else. Now make no mistake. Make no mistake. There's a war that is going on in your hearts, and it is a war of your passions. It is a war of your desires. We read one example of that from James and one from Paul, and we can find it in almost every New Testament letter. We could see the war described for us. Our desires do not naturally follow along after God. They're Mustangs, roaming free, running free across the plains of our lives. They are electrical charges floating through the soft synapses and tissues of our brains. God says, go out there. Don't shoot them. Don't kill the horse. Don't shoot your mind. Harness them. Rein them in. Bring them under control. Because you've got something powerful if you get that thing going in the right direction. But here's the reality. You and I have fallen how many times? How many times has covetousness engulfed us? A thousand times? Ten thousand? A million? It's got to be in the millions, right? I mean, maybe God does have a count somehow. Maybe God could tell us. This is how many times you've done this one. It doesn't really matter because it's got to be upwards in the million times we have fallen to our evil desires, to an evil-shaped covetousness, not a good one. So what do you say to that? What do you say when you're faced with the fact that you've failed at this command way more than you've kept this command? Well, you should say this. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh. I serve the law of sin and death. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free, has set me free from the law of sin and death. The law killed you. You've been set free from the law by the man who kept the law. And verse 3 of chapter 8. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. 
Jesus took my covetousness in his body and with him it was nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Kids, I want to say one thing to you before I wrap this up. Let me tell you something that's going to happen. It's going to happen in years to come. Someone's going to say to you, maybe it's through movies, maybe it's through conversations with a friend, maybe it's shows you hear on television. Someone's going to say to you that this Christianity that you believe has been depriving you of pleasure. And it has snuffed out your natural desires that you should have fulfilled in some other way. And they will say to you, you've got to be liberated from that old-fashioned restriction that your church, your parents, the Bible, society has put upon you. And you'll wonder, hmm, maybe that's right. Maybe I have been depriving myself because other people aren't depriving themselves of things. And they look really happy. That's exactly what Asaph wondered in Psalm 73. He looks out at the world and he becomes envious of the wicked. Because there's no pains in their death. They're they're driving the best cars. And they die fat and happy. That's That's a paraphrase. But it's just like that in Psalm 73. And then he considered the end. Then he considered eternity. Kids, this faith is not to deny you, but it is to enrich you. It is to turn the desires to the proper object in the proper degree for the proper purpose. To love, to covet, to desire what is good. In this life, you and I will never outgrow the warfare. We will labor in Jesus through the word and the spirit. We'll see our sin, we'll see our failings over and over, and we will have to run back to Romans 7, 24, 25, Romans uh, Romans 8, 1, 2, and 3. We'll run back, we'll keep running back there. In the next life, covetousness is gone because we will be with the desire of the nations and the desire of the everlasting hills. And we will enjoy complete and full satisfaction in him for all eternity. Let's pray.